Well, Pastor Harry was scheduled to preach today, and I want you to know I too am sad that he's not here. I was looking forward to uh, hearing him preach, but I am glad to be here. If you would, as uh, Dr. Busnett said, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 10, we're going to be in a familiar story, uh, but a rich one. It's short, but hard to capture all that's in it. It's so deep. So Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 38 to 42, I'd like to read it first and then we'll pray. So Luke 10, 38 to 42. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning eager to hear what you have in store for us in this passage. Would you speak through me by the power of the Spirit and activate the richness of this text for us? So that we may appreciate him who is greatest above all. Amen. Well, there's no question, 2020 has been quite the year. A year of Zoom and gloom, of masks and mandates, infections, elections, votes and ventilators... It's a year we'll all be too happy to wave goodbye to in a few short weeks. 2021, for most people, cannot get here soon enough. And while I think we all have our individual reasons for why we're excited to usher in a new year, I'd like to propose one for you this morning that you may not have considered. The Olympics. See, you may not know that we were supposed to have had the Tokyo Summer Olympics in July. But then COVID happened, the world was overturned, and the Olympics got postponed. But the good news is, July 23rd, 2021, Olympic glory will again usher the world together to watch the most spectacular sporting event on the planet. And I get not everyone is into sports. Some of you don't really care about sports, but I think the Olympics has this special magnetizing power to capture our attention, to really suck us in, not only because we love to watch athletes compete for the glory of our nation, but also I think because the athletes themselves are inspiring figures, because we look at these athletes and we see how they are consumed with a passion for their sport. Their focus is legendary. 
Did you know most athletes, Olympic athletes, they train four to eight years, usually for a single event that lasts less than a minute. They train six days a week, four to six hours a day, because they are utterly consumed with their sport. And their focus, their fixation, their discipline and determination, we find them compelling, captivating. And I think why is because we recognize in them the ideal of what we wish we could be. Because we don't find that level of devotion anywhere in our lives. We are just a distracted people, are we not? Distracted by work, by emails, by hobbies, by kids, smartphones. In fact, I read an article about smartphone usage. It says the average American spends 5.4 hours a day on their phone. And if your average, which no one, of course, is in this room, but the average American will look at his or her phone 52 times a day. Do you think we're distracted a little bit? And I would venture to say that our distractedness is nowhere as evident as in our spiritual lives. I would propose to you that the level of busyness and distraction in our lives is nowhere as keenly visible as in our walk with Christ. If you're like most people, you or like most true Christians, then you're going to say wholeheartedly, I love Christ. And you do. But I bet you also find that your gaze can be caught on so many other things in this life. And, and we can be so busy and pack so many things into our short little lives that we can virtually push Christ right out. I think we have forgotten the spirit of David in Psalm 27.4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. I think we've forgotten that driving ambition of Paul. In Philippians 3, 13 and 14, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ. I wonder if you can relate to that at all this morning. If you might not recognize in your own life a sense of distraction, of busyness, of letting your gaze be attracted to other things? If so, then this is a text just for you. And let's be honest, whether you've walked with Christ for 40 years or 40 minutes, this is a text for you. This is a gentle call from our Savior to refocus on what matters most, to reprioritize that which is essential. And it is a gentle call to treasure him who is highest and best, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. So in our passage this morning, 
I'd like to show you three contrasts. Three contrasts that highlight the priority of devotion to Jesus Christ. Three opposing ideas that illustrate just how supremely important it is to fix our gaze on Jesus Christ. In verses 38 to 40, there is a contrast of position. Verses 40 and 41, a contrast of peace. In verses 41 and 42... A contrast of priority. So we'll approach the text this morning from this perspective. And I think as you'll see, there are riches to be mined here. And at the end, we'll take a moment to consider the implications that this passage has necessarily for our own lives. So let's look at this first contrast. A contrast of position. Find it in the first few verses. Let me read it for you again. Verse 38, Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Here we find the first contrast designed to re-emphasize the priority of devotion to Christ. In verse 38, it says, now as they were traveling along, and we know that's Christ and his disciples from the preceding context, and they enter a village. Our text doesn't say, but this is a village called Bethany, not far from Jerusalem. And in this village, we're introduced to a woman. Her name is Martha. Martha, it says, welcomed him into her home. And this is the first time Martha appears in our gospel in Luke. But when you look at the gospel John, we learn a few more things about Martha. John 11 tells us that Martha has a brother named Lazarus who dies. And in John 11, we find Martha's great confession, where she says in 11.27, You are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So it is this Martha that we find in our story. She welcomes Christ and the disciples into the home. She is the gracious host. And as we walk with Christ into the the home and as they settle themselves comfortably in the house, Luke introduces us to another character. Verse 39 says she has a sister called Mary. And it's interesting because Luke tells us where Mary is at in this passage. He gives us a location for Mary. He says, Mary is seated at the Lord's feet. She is listening to his word. Now, if you just read that story casually, it kind of seems like a throwaway detail. But the beauty of the Bible is there are no throwaway details. Everything matters because every word was inspired. So when Luke says, Mary was seated at the Lord's feet, there's a purpose. And if you go back to the culture of that time, to sit at someone's feet symbolized something. Acts 22.3, it says that the Apostle Paul was educated under Gamaliel. He was a famous teacher of the law. But literally, the text says he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And so what that means 
And what it meant in that day to sit at someone's feet was to identify as that person's disciple. To say, I am formally following this teacher. I want to pattern my life after this teacher. I want to absorb this teacher's words. So when Mary is listed, or rather detailed, as sitting at the Lord's feet, that's exactly what she was doing. She was identifying herself as Christ's disciple. She was hanging on to his every word, utterly absorbed in everything that he said. I wonder if you have ever had a professor or a teacher or a pastor, preacher like that, who just based on the force of what they said, on the the richness of their words, that you just were sort of spellbound when they spoke. I had a professor like that in seminary, just for one class, unfortunately. But he was the kind of man, when he spoke, everyone else stopped. When he opened his mouth, everyone shut theirs. And I remember being in his class As he taught, it was like he was dripping gold. And so you just wanted to catch every single drop. And we were scribbling furiously and typing up a storm because you didn't want to miss one thing he said. Because what he had to say was engrossing and it was powerful. It was a three-hour class. And I remember I never let myself go to the bathroom because I didn't want to miss what he had to say. That's Mary. That's the picture of Mary. She is seated at the Lord's feet. She is totally tuned in to what he has to say. She is drinking in his words like water. And when you consider who she was listening to, it's hard to imagine how she could do anything otherwise. This was the one of whom Peter said in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's who Mary had found. Mary was listening to the one who had the words of eternal life. And so quite naturally, Mary was going nowhere. She was firmly rooted in place. And that introduces us to our first critical contrast in this passage. Verse 40, there's an all-important word there, but... Mary is seated at the Lord's feet, listening, but. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. That word distracted means to be dragged away. Martha was pulled in a hundred different directions. She was like a pinball bouncing here and there. After all, it was Martha's home. Martha was the consummate host. She was the gracious host who invited Christ and the disciples in. So it was on her to make sure that their needs were well attended to. To make sure that they had enough food, that they were comfortable. And so there is Martha. No doubt, wishing she could be at Christ's feet. But the demands of the moment were too urgent for Martha. And so she was not there listening to Christ. She was taking care of all that had to be done. And no doubt she did it as an act of love. And before we chide Martha too much, 
you should know that, that what Martha was doing was a good thing. That it was good for Martha to serve. It was good for Martha to love her guests in this way. Spurgeon even says, It was not her fault that she had much serving. We cannot do too much. Let us do all that we possibly can. Head and heart and hands. Let every single power and passion of our nature be engaged in the master's service. But her fault was that she was so busy with much serving that she forgot him and remembered only the service. You see, Martha wasn't wrong for serving. Martha was wrong for neglecting the Lord. And I guess I should insert a footnote here, perhaps a caveat. Don't take this the wrong way. Don't take this to say, you know what, I am a little bit involved at church, so I should just back off. Probably I shouldn't host Bible study. Maybe I shouldn't serve as much. Uh, Let me kind of withdraw a little bit. Because that's not the intent of this passage, to tell you to, to back up. Because you should be serving. You have spiritual gifts that you must employ for the benefit of this body. But what you must remember in all of your serving is that the master is preeminent. We must not let what is pressing steal us from what is primary. Because that's where Martha is at in this passage. What is urgent has stolen her from what was essential. And it's very, very easy for us to do, especially in our world with a zillion distractions. If you're a mother, I can imagine you would love nothing more to start your day with some quiet cup of coffee and a Bible. But if you have kids, that's an unrealizable dream. You spend your whole day just trying to keep your little tornadoes from ripping the house apart, from burning the place down, and they've got runny noses and peanut butter smudged faces, and you're just trying to maintain some level of order. Yeah, you want to read your Bible, but where are you going to find the time? I don't think it's easier for husbands either. Many of you are probably working from home now because of COVID. And so your work hours have really just stretched across the whole day. You're always answering emails, always responding to work text messages. And by the time you finally disconnect at the end of the day, you start job number two. You have to be a dad. And while your wife makes dinner, you've got to take care of the kids. And then after dinner, there's baths and brushing teeth and bedtime stories. So when everything is done, you get a few minutes to talk with your wife before you fall asleep mid-sentence. And where are you supposed to fit in your quiet time with that schedule? And it doesn't get easier for students. You've got exams and papers and projects and groups that want to meet all the time. And there's a deadline after a deadline after a deadline. And that says nothing about extracurricular activities, spending time with friends. Life's just not easy, is it? What is easy is is to let Christ be pushed aside. to, To find ourselves distracted by everything else. And to focus on that which is important but not essential. That's our first contrast here in this passage because that's what Martha was doing. Mary was seated. Martha was serving. 
There's another contrast in this passage that I'd like to look at in verses 40 and 41. It's a contrast of peace. It's a contrast of peace. Now I get that you look at this story and the word peace doesn't appear. So you may ask, uh, what is this contrast of peace? Well, if you compare Mary and Martha, the absence of peace is simply undeniable. Verse 40, Martha was distracted with all of her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Well, the text is clear in these verses. Martha is experiencing anything but peace. In fact, what Martha is experiencing is a consequence of letting her work overwhelm her worship. Of letting her duty replace her devotion. And so it's no surprise that we see Martha acting up the way that we do. Now remember, Mary is seated at the Lord's feet. Mary's not helping At least that's the way Martha would probably consider it. And so as Martha is busy making sure everything is perfect, you can imagine the conversation that's probably taking place in her head. She's irritated at Mary. Where is Mary? Why am I doing this by myself? Why doesn't Mary help me? I'm not supposed to do this by myself. Don't we both live in this house? Frustration is mounting inside of Martha. She's becoming a little bit indignant. Finally, Martha, Martha can't take it anymore. I think Luke is gracious to Martha when he mildly records she came up to him. Maybe uh, a more descriptive picture would be Martha slamming down her dishes and then storming out into the room All the while, mind you, Christ is teaching. The people are hanging on his every word. And Martha interrupts. And Martha comes up to Christ, storming and fuming, hot and bothered. And listen to what Martha says. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? That word alone says it all. Martha feels abandoned. Martha feels like Mary is abdicating her responsibility, neglecting her duties. And so Martha now has to do it all. And do you know what? That's not right. So Martha has to make it right. So she goes up to Christ, and in phrasing the question, do you notice how she makes Christ look insensitive? As if Jesus was indifferent to, his, to her problems. Do you not care? And uh, we wish that maybe Martha's speech would have ended there. Because perhaps she could pull the foot out of her mouth. But no, Martha has more nerve than that. She doesn't leave it with that simple agitated statement. She's actually competing for Peter here with uh, saying the most 
unfortunate things like when Peter rebuked Christ and said, Lord, far be it that you should die. And he himself receives a counter rebuke. Oh, Martha is competing with words that she wishes she could take back. And she actually commands Jesus to do what she wants. She says, then tell her to help me. I'm a proud Southerner from the state of Arkansas. And the, Southern, the Southerner in me would like to translate it this way. I can actually imagine maybe my sister-in-law saying it perhaps like this. Then tell her to get her sweet little self back into the kitchen to help me. That's what the NASB records, the New American Southern Bible, which, of course, we all read in Arkansas. Martha is way out of line. Martha has way overstepped her bounds. And I think that makes Christ's response all the more amazing in verse 41. Notice how, again, we find that trigger word, but. Luke's giving us a significant context clue here. He says, but the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. And might I just add, you never want Jesus to say your name twice. You never want your mom to use your full name. You never want Jesus to say your name twice. You know you really goofed up. Christ is so gracious with her. He could have rebuked her as he did with Peter in Matthew 16. But his gentleness is almost overpowering. Martha, Martha. And he diagnoses precisely her problem. Martha's worried and bothered about so many things. That word worried is the exact same word translated anxious in Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing. You see, Martha in this moment was the poster child for anxiety. Because that's what was ruling her in this moment. Martha was worried and bothered. And you have to wonder, how did Martha get here? To a place where she has no peace, just agitation. No contentment, just frustration. And where she is saying things that no doubt she will later regret. How did she get there? Well, it all starts by being in the wrong position. By taking her eyes off of Christ and looking at everything else. And that's what happens. When we look at other things, when we focus on all that life throws at us, then Christ quite naturally gets pushed off of his throne. And make no mistake, something will sit in his place. And when that happens, our peace will soon depart. Anxiety will come in. And before we know it, we too will be saying and doing things that we regret. Thus far, Luke has presented us with a contrast of position and a contrast of peace. 
both of which are designed to emphasize to you, the reader, that devotion to Christ is of absolute and ultimate importance. And I think, like a master storyteller, Luke saves the best for last. Because there is yet a third contrast that you must see here in this passage. A contrast, really a climactic contrast, that shows you the all-essential importance of being devoted to Christ. We find it in verses 41 and 42. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Christ has exposed Martha's problem. Martha wasn't at fault for serving. Martha was at fault for forgetting what was more important than serving, namely Christ. Martha was, in the end, in the final analysis, focused on the wrong thing. Mary had focused on one thing. Mary was contentedly sitting at the feet of Christ, undisturbed by everything else. Martha was was focusing on many things. And Christ praises Mary here. He praises Mary for identifying that one thing which is most important. That one priority which supersedes all the rest. And he says, but only one thing is necessary. Which I think should make you, the reader, say, what is it? What is it? What is the necessary thing? Mary has chosen the good part. Well, what is the good part? I like the way the ESV renders it. The ESV says Mary has chosen the good portion. What is, what is the good portion? What is the good part? Jesus doesn't explicitly say here. So remember, what was Mary doing that Martha wasn't? Mary is sitting at Christ's feet. Absorbed in the person of Christ. This is not a new idea to Scripture to focus in on that good portion, that one essential thing. In fact, three different authors in the book of Psalms highlight this theme. David does it in Psalm 16:5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Asaph does it in Psalm 73, 20, or 25 and 26. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And the anonymous writer of Psalm 119 emphasizes the very same thing. Verse 57, The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. Do you see the tie that binds all those together? That common thread? The Lord is to be the portion. And that's what Mary had found. God in flesh sitting in front of her. Mary knew the good portion, the good part. And so she was consumed with that which was best and highest. 
listening to and learning from Christ. And therein lies the lesson for us. To cut away the clutter, to refocus our gaze, to reprioritize what matters most. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you that question. What is your priority? What would someone say about you is your one thing? Are you more like Mary? Are you characterized by a fervent devotion to Jesus Christ? You're just in love with him. You want to spend time with him. You feel your affection for him deepen and widen. Or do you feel a bit more like Martha? Busy, busy, busy. Distracted, distracted, distracted. Maybe you've been so immersed in the labor of ministry that you forgot the Lord of ministry. And now life has completely swept you along and you, you fit Christ in where you can. And your love has gone a little bit cold. Christ is a priority for sure. But if you looked at your life, it'd be hard to say that he is the priority. I think there's a third group. And there are those for whom Christ, he really doesn't rank as a priority. You're a fan of Jesus, no doubt. Um, you come to church, you like to hear about him, he's got good things to say. Uh, but Christ isn't the Lord of your life. He's interesting, but he's not the Lord. And so you're happy to let him coexist in your life, occupy a room of your house, as long as he doesn't ask too much from you or bother you and and trouble you because, listen, you have your own pursuits, comfort, career, financial future, family. You have things that you want to go after, and you are. But I have to tell you, that's not Christianity. Because you could gain the whole world. If you forfeit your soul, you've lost it all. Christ is the supreme treasure. And if you have never surrendered to him as Lord, if you don't know him in a way that he actually is your supreme passion, then I'm afraid to say you've missed it entirely. Because there is none sweeter than Christ. None higher nor holier. None better. He is the best. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. The radiance of the Father's glory. The exact representation of His his nature. Possessor of all divine attributes. Creator, sustainer. Alpha, omega. Beginning and end. He is the Lord of whom in Isaiah 6 they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's the treasure hidden in the field. He's the pearl of great price. More costly than jewels, more precious than gold, sweeter than honey, 
more fragrant than a rose. Christ is the best. And if you don't know him, you've never repented and placed your faith in Christ, then today he calls you and beckons you and he says, come to me. But most of you, you do know him. And it's not that you don't love him, it's that you've been a little bit distracted. So where do you go? How do you reignite that fire for Christ? How do you reprioritize what matters most? Let me make two simple suggestions. First, in humility, assess and confess. In humility, assess and confess. And what I mean by that is take spiritual inventory of your life. Examine your heart. Assess what is the degree of your love for Christ. Where are you at? Some of you, you may have never experienced a season where Christ has been more real, more precious, where you're so on fire for Christ. And you can't imagine not wanting to talk about him to someone because you love him. And it's almost palpable your love for him, visceral. But for others of you, that's a bygone day. Maybe you experienced it early in your conversion, but now... Yeah, you love Jesus, you like coming to church, but, but there's not that, that burning sense of love for Christ. Maybe like the Ephesian church in Revelation, you've left your, you've left your first love. There's no fire anymore burning for Christ. There's just a few scattered coals with wisps of smoke. But others, you, you may be wondering, well, how do I know? How do I assess my heart, my devotion to Christ? Let me give you an assessment tool. Here's an acid test to sort of measure the level of your devotion to Christ. Are you regularly reading his word? Are you regularly reading and feeding on his word? In many ways, your love for Christ will be directly correlated with the amount of time you spend with him in the word. Let me say that once more. In many ways, your love for Christ, the the measure of your love for Christ is directly correlated with the amount of time you spend with him in scripture. Am I suggesting that reading the Bible earns and maintains your salvation? Of course not. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But it is true. Mark this. It is true. You will not grow in your love for Christ if you are not absorbing his word. Why? Because it's in the word that we meet Christ. It's in the word as we walk through the gospels that you see his power, his wisdom, his might, his love, his empathy, his compassion. Jesus himself said in John 5, To the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But it is in these that testify about me. Dear friend, if you want to grow in your love for Christ, the word is the way. So assess your condition and in humility confess. 
confess that perhaps you have strayed. Perhaps your interests have been divided. That your devotion has slackened. That you don't love Christ to the extent that he merits. Because his merit is infinite and his worthiness is infinite. So confess, if that's you, that you don't love him as you should. And plead, plead for grace to know him more. So what should you do? Well, first, in humility, assess and confess. But that's not all. Number two, sit and savor. Simply sit and savor the Savior. This is a call to be like Mary. To sit at the Lord's feet. You sit at the Lord's feet by learning of Him and from Him in the Word. You sit at the Lord's feet by meditating upon Him in the Scripture. You sit at the Lord's feet by letting His words wash over your mind and renew your thinking. Spurgeon said, Imagine not that to sit at Jesus' feet is a very small, unmeaning thing. It means peace. For they who submit to Jesus find peace through His precious blood. It means holiness for those who learn of Jesus, learn no sin, but are instructed in things lovely and of good repute. It means strength for they that sit with Jesus and feed upon him are girded with strength. The joy of the Lord is their strength. It means wisdom for they that learn of the Son of God understand more than the ancients because they keep his statutes. And it means zeal for the love of Christ fires hearts that live upon it. And they that are much with Jesus become like Jesus. So that the zeal of the Lord's house eats them up. My friend, as you sit and savor the Savior, your love for Him will grow. Your affections will be enlarged. Your appreciation for His all-sufficiency will grow. And you will begin to get, have a distaste for the things of the world. And an appetite for the things of Christ. Because make no mistake, he is the best. He is the best. As you sit and savor the Savior, you'll be enraptured by his beauty. Enthralled by his power. Entranced by his wisdom. So yes, sit and savor the Savior. The message... And this text this morning was plain and simple. Luke employed three contrasts. A contrast of position, a contrast of peace, and a contrast of priority. To highlight that only one thing is necessary. One thing is needful. I know that it's easy to get caught up in the current of life. To get swept aside so that we forget that Christ really is the best. We need a reminder like this, do we not? We're not Olympians. We don't have iron will. We don't have perfect concentration. But like Martin Luther said, we are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. May this text serve to stimulate you and push you forward 
so that you too will sit at Christ's feet and savor his beauty. I'd like to leave you with the words of Bernard of Clairvaux. I pray that this would be true of you and me. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. But sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. No voice can sing, nor heart can frame, nor can the memory find a sweeter sound than thy blessed name, O Savior of mankind. Pray with me. Christ, we come to you and we acknowledge that you are the greatest treasure. And Lord, we have allowed ourselves to be distracted. And we're thankful for this clarion call to come back to the center, to come back and gaze upon your beauty, to dwell in the temple with you. I pray that by the power of the Spirit, by the grace which you impart, that you will give us the the strength to redevote ourselves to Jesus, to love you with a love that matches your excellency. You are the greatest, Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.